There are two times in life when doing your best isn't good enough. That's when more is expected and more is needed. This is the rule of thumb that Anthony King has used throughout his management and his many opportunities in IT companies as he progressed through his career as often the first African-American man in IT security. You're going to really enjoy his interview where he talks about the influence of his grandmother and also his father and recently perspective of youth and how that keeps him fresh in the way that he takes new things on and approaches making sure that he doesn't get stuck in old ways of thinking. So I won't make you wait any longer. Let's get right into the interview with Anthony King. Hello and welcome to the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast, where culture, communication, and context meet at work. In this podcast, you will discover what cultural influences have formed the careers of noteworthy leaders in a variety of professions by exploring the groups that shaped who they are today. Learn about the collective context and experiences that affect their worldview, leadership style, workplace communication, and behavior. I'm your host, Marie Gervais, and I am going to be interviewing my esteemed colleague, Anthony King, today. I'll tell you a little bit about Anthony King, and then he can introduce himself more. Anthony D. King was formerly the Raytheon Missile Systems Chief Information Security Officer and Director of IT Security Governance, Risk, and Compliance, responsible for fostering business relationships and integrating cybersecurity technologies and best practices to achieve strategic business goals. Anthony is now the President and Founder of Associated Consultants with over 30 years of technical and business experience in computing and engineering environments, including 20-plus years experience in management. Associated Consultants provides expert IT and cybersecurity consulting services with a genuine and personal interest in serving the customer's needs. And Anthony and I were just talking before the podcast, and he was saying that he only does things that make a difference and uh, that serve people, which is the way we should all be approaching our work, I think, all the time. Imagine a planet where everyone was doing that. We would have a pretty awesome world to live in. So Anthony, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. And please introduce yourself and say a little bit more to fill out that introduction that I started for you. Thank you, Marie. And I won't spend a lot of time on that introduction because it was long-winded and listening to it on this other side. So I'll make this brief. But essentially, some of the points that I'd like to add to that, that we'll add to this podcast is sort of my history of technology. I've been in technology almost my entire life from the time I was in high school um, until I just retired recently. And we talked earlier whether I'm really retired or not, I'm still doing technical things. I have always enjoyed doing that. But one of the ironic parts about having all of that technical curiosity and part of my career has all been technically based. My degree is actually in education. I ended up taking so many courses growing up because I couldn't decide what I wanted to be. And when I got ready to go look for my graduation records to prepare, I had over 300 semester hours, but not enough in any particular discipline to actually get a degree. So believe it or not, I went back to school for another um, 18 months to actually focus on something, and I chose education to focus on. So my degree is actually in education, although I've been in highly technical fields my entire career. And that's actually how I first met you, was I heard you present at a conference, a manufacturing leadership conference, and I was very impressed with the way you presented and the way you interacted with the audience. Obviously, you have an educator within that just comes out whenever there's the opportunity. I hope it does. That's, that's my goal. <laughs> so can you share a couple of incidents from your childhood that you believe made you into that person that you are today? Something that stands out. Absolutely. There's, there's a couple of things that stand out. And we, you and I have talked about this before, but I'll talk about two of them that are significant. Um, one is my grandmother. My grandmother was a primary influence growing up. Funny part about that, when I tell people this story, my grandmother never passed the fifth grade. Um, she was 
I'm one of many children of slave parents, but that didn't stop her. She had to stop working, stop going to school, excuse me, to work and help the family. And she started that at a very early age, ended up getting married at even a very early age, at 16 years of age. But her and my grandfather were together until um, he passed away, then later her at 103 years old, and he was 90 plus years old. So they were together their entire life. Not having a formal education, she taught me a lot about life. And I think that's really what's helped me. I didn't know it at the time. I was just hanging out with my grandmother. She was one of the coolest ladies I've ever been around, but very, very influential on my life. And the message that she left me with was really to do the right thing. And I know that sounds corny and, and simplified, but it was really about just try to do the right thing. doesn't make any difference where your place is in life or where you are. You just try to do the right thing. And growing up and seeing her work on people's farms and pick cotton and peas and other things, at the time it didn't seem like that, but she always did what she thought was right because the family needed the income. She went out and did that. And when she passed away, um, and this is quite some time ago, so as I said earlier, she was 103 years old. We lived in a Southern town that was still fairly separated at the time. That's the best way to say it. There was a cemetery for people of color, and there was a white cemetery. And that's the way the town was. That's since changed. But that's how it was during her life and growing up. And doing um, the procession from her services, we drove through this predominantly um, white southern town, through a, a fairly main street highway through the town, out to where the, the cemetery was, where we were going to have her services. And as we were driving, the parade of people along the side of the highway, there were families of people with multiple generations, from the grandparents to the parents to the small children, standing alongside the highway because they knew she was going by, that Charlotte was going by. And that's when it clicked for me. She did the right thing her entire life, didn't expect anything from it. I know she didn't expect that kind of farewell, but to me, that was really eye-opening that doing the right thing and just trying to make a difference with people really has its rewards. Whether you see it in your lifetime or not, it's really there. That's permeated my entire work career. So that's kind of how I work, and that's kind of how it drives me in my decision-making. It certainly is a great value to live by, and it can be something that you can uh, remind other people of, too. I remember I was working with a, a group of supervisors once who were complaining that their manager treated them so badly that they couldn't apply any of the things that they were supposed to be learning. And I had a meeting with him and I said, hey, when you die, do you think any of the people that you work with are going to come to your funeral? <laughs> Actually, it was a big wake up call for him because he hadn't been thinking like your grandmother about doing the right thing. But it really made him start to think that way. I don't know if it had any long term effect. But what your grandmother said, I think, is really important because if you consider the end in the beginning and the beginning in the end, you do the right thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the proof was all of those people lining up on the highway it to, was. Watch, to watch your grandmother go by and, and, and give her a final farewell. It, it was amazing for me. At the time, I was, you know, an older adult, and it was really eye-opening experience I'll never forget. Is there another incident from your life that stands out as being formative for you? It is. My, my father, uh, my father was a very smart gentleman, I'm very athletic, but he taught me a lot of things about just listening, observing. He was very quiet. A lot of people, when they met him, um, typically said, I don't think your dad likes me. And I said, why? He said, because he didn't say anything. Well, he never does. He says, he'll, I'll speak when I have something of value to say. So he doesn't speak a lot. He's not a huge conversationalist. And, and not that that's served me well. That part I've had to work on being able to speak more. But what it did teach me and what he taught me about that is, to speak when you have something of value to add. Because one of the analogies he used for me very young as a child 
was that an empty wagon makes a lot of noise. And as a seven-year-old, I didn't have any idea what that meant. And he says, some people just talk a lot, make a lot of noise, but there's nothing really of value in it. And if you've ever ridden in a wagon, it makes a lot of noise when there's nothing in it. But you put something in it, doesn't make as much noise. So it's really just told me you have to have something of substance. People are just talking all the time in his mind. They may not have as much value to add as people that are less talkative but do talk from time to time. And that sort of served me well as well, because most people in meetings and throughout my career, it was almost like the E.F. Hutton thing, and I didn't try to do that, but I don't speak a lot. But when I did, people wanted to listen because, uh-oh, Anthony's going to say something. And I just listened much more than I ever talked, and my dad taught me that. So I teach the folks that I have worked with over the course of my life and as well with my children that they should listen twice as much as they ever talk. They have one mouth and two ears. Listen more than you talk. And that's really certainly well. My, my dad helped me with that. I love that uh, an empty wagon makes a lot of noise. That's a great, that's a great analogy. He, he had a lot of old farming sayings that he used to share with us. Mm-hmm. So uh, next question is from the groups you were born into. And what would you say has most influenced your sense of culture and self as a leader? Because, you know, you've been working in management for a long time. So what groups that you were born into gave you some tools that you could use? Being born an Afro-American or any minority, it doesn't have to be an Afro-American, but a a minority in particular, you observe, hopefully, that a lot of situations you're in, you're usually one of a kind or very few of the minorities in the room, whether you're female or any other ethnic group. So growing up, and particularly in my early work years, I would start to notice that I was the only person of color in the room when we would have a conversations. And the further I moved up to management, the even more frequent I would notice that there were fewer people of color in the room. So what it really did, two things, made me very observant of that. So I was always cognizant of that whenever I was in a situation. But it also gave me that confidence that I could be in a room with anyone. It didn't make any difference. So for me in my work life, my color pretty much vanished for me. I mean, I understood I might be the only person of color in the room, but as far as being in that room and how I felt in that room, it didn't make a difference because my whole entire life had been that way. So coming from that culture gave me those two aspects that I think have really served me well. And you even married somebody who wasn't from your, from your race or culture. How, how did that work out? It's, it's worked out. I mean, there's, there's not without its challenges. This is my second marriage. Uh, My first marriage was also to someone not of my race. But what it taught me is that even though it might be difficult and challenging, which sometimes it was, there's also lots of reward to it. But the thing that really is important is they didn't teach me the color difference. I mean, when I say color differences, they obviously made sure I knew there was differences in the different cultures and colors, but that a person, a good person trying to do the right thing didn't make any difference in your skin color or ethnic background or anything at all. So it really became blind to me, my siblings, and a lot of folks in my family because of that attitude that she brought to the family. So I think that's really helpful. She would have learned some things about how to respond more appropriately based on sensitivities that she got from you, right? I mean, you had to adapt to being in a white culture all the time, but she would have had to learn to adapt, I would think, in order for the marriage to be successful. She would have had to learn to tune in to some of the things that you face all the time and be a part of that. And she absolutely did. I mean, one of the first few experiences we had going into places, we were noticed more than she'd ever been used to in any relationship. I didn't even pay any attention to it. I wasn't even aware. I'd almost become immune to it because it's been part of my life learning. But it was new to her. So she would notice instantly, almost every time I walked in her room. And I told her, I says, that will happen everywhere we go. Hopefully someday that will change. But for now, it won't. 
So she became very observant to just observing that people did have a different perspective of opinion. She came from a family that raised her, again, color agnostic. So she didn't expect any of that. But when she was in a relationship with someone of a different race and color, she started to observe it. But she learned to adjust with it. One of the things she really had a tough time adjusting with is not always speaking or talking because you can't fix everyone out there that doesn't get it yet. So you just have to pick and choose your opportunities. And that's helped her. I mean, she is very vocal when it's appropriate. There are times when someone could say something, but it's not an appropriate situation. You read about a lot of those things escalating in the news. She's learned to pick her battles, so to speak. Yeah, you want to make sure you have some receptivity because otherwise you just end up having more and more antagonism and it doesn't end well for anybody. Yeah, you just escalate a bad situation. So you you learn how not to escalate. Is it a situation where I can have a dialogue and not escalate it? Or is this going to just make it worse? And you learn to pick those times and identify those opportunities. Great skill to have. It is. I have some friends. They were born in the U.S. They moved with their two children to Taiwan where the kids lived all their lives. The two boys speak Mandarin and Taiwanese better than they speak English. They look like white Americans. Twice every two years, the parents would take the kids to Canada where their relatives lived. And the kids always said that it was a big relief for them because they didn't realize how much they were visible in Taiwan. In Taiwan, everybody's always touching you. They were always looking at them and saying, where are you from? Even though they'd lived there their entire lives and their English was really not that good. All of their social cues and mannerisms were all Taiwanese. Wow. The way they ate, everything, all of their, their stuff was all Taiwanese, but they didn't look Taiwanese. But when they came to Canada or to the U.S. to visit their relatives on, in both of those countries, they just blended in and it was a relief and they didn't realize what a relief it was. I'm sure you've had experiences like that too, where you just don't have to deal with the fact that you're so visible. Yes, exactly. And having those experiences uh, in comparison to the ones where you're feeling like you have to sort of always be up, uh, but yet you're used to it. It's, yeah. it's a different, different kind of skill set. Yep, it definitely is. So, but you've also chosen to belong to your professional groups, IT and engineering management. You chose to join your wife's group and culture. You have also your neighborhoods that you've moved into. All of those things that you've chosen. Are there some choices of groups that you belong to that you think have affected the way you view yourself as a manager? I believe so. I think one of the groups um, that I associate myself with, both my wife and I, is the younger generation. And that's all the way from the the little toddlers, the one, two-year-old, on on up to young adults. We have quite a few grandchildren. You know, I talked about before. I have 16 grandchildren. We have two great-grandchildren. We're surrounded by a lot of children and small children. All of our children are all adults. That's hence why we have so many grandchildren. But we still associate with that group, whether it's at home with the family group of young adults or young people, or with the school. I'm involved with the University of Arizona. I'm, again, a younger group of people. We volunteer. We do things with it. And and the reason that association is important to us, it keeps us thinking, not just thinking young um, and, and not feeling like you're getting old, because with that group, you start to feel like you're old pretty fast just because they can do things you physically can't do anymore. But it really keeps you young mentally by listening to them. And one of the things that really comes out of those groups, if you've ever spent any time with them, they're not aware of what they can't do. So you learn things that you can't learn in our adult groups because we already know you can't do that. So why we even talk about it or do it? They don't know it. So a lot of new opportunities and discoveries and things, aha moments 
have come from that small group of people that we associate with, even all the way down to our small children. You always hear out of the mouth of babes come words of wisdom. That is so true if you hang around those young people. So that's a group that we really associate ourselves with. We'll continue to do that just because of how they make you think and view the world. We just view it differently. Totally. Totally. So what about temperament and personality? I'm saying temperament's what you're born with. You know, you have a ten- tendencies. Everybody's got some tendencies that they're born with. Some people tend to be really generous and other people tend to be not so generous, um, but they might tend to be more friendly and others tend to be more sort of withdrawn. So that would be your temperament. And the personality is the stuff that you acquire through education and experience and your response to those things. So that part's changeable. But you were born with a temperament and you acquired some personality characteristics. What would you say are some of your key temperament and key personality characteristics? From a temperament perspective, patience would definitely be one of them. And that's something, again, my, my father being a quiet spoken person had lots of patience. Learned that from both him, my grandparents, very patient people. So patience is a temperament um, that I think I was born with. Um, I think if if there is a gene for being mild-mannered, my family had that one. The other was being fairly observant. We were always, because as an elder in my family, my father was one of the older in his family, and likewise with my grandfather, we're always kind of protecting or looking out for the family. So you become more observant. You look at things. You see things that other people don't. Others spending time looking around. We may not be having as much fun that people would put quotes around, but we're doing what's really natural to us. And that's really observing our environment, our situation, to make sure we can take any action that may be needed. So that's one thing that's really served me well from a temperament perspective. So being calm, kind of mild-mannered, but being very observant at the same time. What about personality? Would you say you've acquired some things over time? Um, Personality, I think the personality that I've acquired is patience of others. And you might think that that seems like ironic. If you're a patient person, I'm not very patient with other people. That's something I had to really acquire. I'm a very driven person. I like results and try to get them done as quickly as I can. Um, Part of the work ethic that my family gave me was work harder than anyone else and expect less. And that kind of mentality makes you really work hard. Now, I've learned to play hard, as hard as I work. But that patience part, I didn't get that. If someone wasn't getting or running at the same speed or pace that I was, I was almost at the point of dismissing and moving on to either somebody else or doing it myself. So that learned skill was really patient of other people, that we all progress at different speeds. So what that skill lended itself to is me making sure I was very explicit and explaining to anyone that I'm working with what my expectations were, whether it was just from what I needed from them or how I was going to interact from them, but expectations was very clear. And one key expectation that sort of is a learned trait again, again, doing your best, and I always try to do my best. My father taught me to always try to do your best, but he also told me that There are two times in life that son, doing your best isn't going to be good enough. That's when more is expected or more is needed. And at the time when he told me this, I really didn't get that at all. Um, He used a real quick analogy about sports since he was very good at sports. I mean, a national level type sports athlete. But at the time I was going to school playing football, he said, even as good as I was at sport, and I think I still am fairly good, he says, how well do you think I would do meeting the expectation of your team if I went out for your team. And that was sort of the click for me that, okay, the, the, he would do his best, but it still wouldn't be enough because more would be needed 
or expected for anybody walking on that field. So I got that. And I kind of grew up with that. And passing that on to folks and making sure that's explicitly clear with any work group I've ever been with. You just need to understand. I want everybody to do their best. We're going to keep raising the bar, so it's going to be harder for you to do your best. There's going to be those two times. If they ever occur, I think it's a management responsibility. So I've taken that on as a management problem to solve. Um, if there's more expected of an individual, we need to make sure it's articulated. And if more is needed, we need to make sure that's articulated as well. And that's the management issue to work through. And that's actually really important because when you're a manager, people need to know what's personal and what's business and what's expected of them in advance so that they don't take things in a way that's going to feel like it's a personal slight when it's not intended that way. And to be able to accept where their strengths are and where they're not so strong so other people can step in. I think those are all important things to be able to do as a manager. And if you can't do that, you really can't step up to the management level that's required of you, don't you think? It is, and it's challenging. I mean, it's not an easy thing. I talk about it now because it's become more innate. But learning that early on, it's hard to go talk to people when they aren't performing or doing what's needed. But if you step back from it, in most cases, it's either expectations weren't very clear or that me as a manager, I wasn't willing to step up and say something early enough to let them know that I expect more out of it. Now, my expectations could have been misguided, but by having that conversation, that dialogue with them, we get those ironed out so we know what those expectation levels are and we can work with that. So it has been hard, but it's been very good to actually achieve and have that part of my work. So setting the expectation and then intervening early on to make sure that things move forward or to stop them if there's an error, those are the two things that you think were really necessary, hey? Really necessary and that you do it immediately as soon as you see it. You don't let it move, even if it's just a once-up occurrence or something that you observe. If you bring it up and talk to an individual, yeah, I know that just happens this one time. You'll have that conversation. It won't be something that you see as a repeated pattern or something else if you say it the very first time. And if you have that conversation early on, you're really just talking about your observation. You're not putting any value on it, just an observation. So now you can have that conversation about the expectation without setting so much tension in that conversation. Mm -hmm. That dialogue is hard, but if you have it staged that way, it just makes it a little easier to yeah, I really like that, that, you know, if you've already stated in advance, then you're just stating an observation. There's not that same emotional baggage where it feels like they're being criticized. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, almost uh, at the end, I just wanted to ask you about a time you might have become aware that your cultural understandings were specific to your culture. And I know when we discussed this earlier, you did have an experience where you were working with another group and you came to the realization that there was an American way of doing things that you hadn't noticed before. You thought that was just sort of a universal way of doing things. Do you, do you remember that discussion? I'll see if this is it. I have so many stories. When you work this long and you're so old, you have lots of stories. You don't look old. <laughs> and you don't sound old. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep working on that. <laughs> but, but one of the cultural situations that occurred to me is I spent some time working overseas. Um, Australia is the country that I was working in. And I had been sent over to do some training with some very, very brilliant folks on some equipment we had sent over. I had to train them on how to use the equipment. They learned how to use the equipment very quickly. But one of the things I learned over there is they liked to enjoy themselves and go out and do things. So we would go out occasionally with the group and spend time with them. And one of the things over here in the, in the U.S. that we really use quite often, and I hear today and I just kind of chuckle under my voice, is when we have either eaten or drinking too much or something, we'll say we're stuffed. So that was just a, a characteristic or a trait or state saying that I used all the time. Seven months over there, I started to notice that people would sit back or 
kind of look at each other. And I finally asked my friends that we've become very good friends with, why does everybody look at me when I say that I'm stuffed? And they said, well, over in Australia, that has a completely different connotation. It's when you tell somebody to go get stuffed. It's just completely different. And there's a different word. You could probably figure out what that word is. And I had been using this as a professional in work environments for almost seven months both doing training sessions. If we had food or thing brought in, I would come back in and get in front of the class and, boy, my stuff had no idea what I had actually been doing. That, that was, was very my, unkind of them not to instruct you on that. And, and I thought that too, and I let them know that later. They just sort of laughed. One of the things that it made me aware of is that one was a funny one, but you could have other culture situations that wouldn't be as funny. So it really became a thing for me. If I was going to be interacting with any other different culture, I tried to understand something about that culture before I had that engagement, just to make sure we didn't have that kind of awkward moment. And there are going to be some awkward moments anyway. Yes. Uh, but then if you tell people, you know, if, if you see me doing something that's really wrong for the culture, I would appreciate knowing what that is. <laughs> and you're setting the expectations for them, like you were talking about earlier, that probably would help out. Yes. Yep. And as an educator, just like you said, that's something that I do now before I get in front of any audience, because there might be something I, I'll use an American phrase or colloquialism that really might not fit. And I don't want to do that. So I make sure people know that if I say something that's truly North American, you need to just let me know and I'll explain you what I meant. And we'll pick a better word or a different word if we need to. Yeah. And people also get good results when they say, so at the end of the meal, what do people typically say when they've eaten too much? Yes. <laughs> you can pick up on some of the local colloquialisms. It, 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 in this situation, just to add to it, not to drag it out too long, I asked him, I said, well, what do you guys say? when you're, he says, We're full. <laughs> so it was, it was so plain and obvious. And yeah, we just say we're full. <laughs> okay, I, I get it. I'm full. Got it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, wanted to ask you, because we're almost at the end of the interview, but let's say that an employer was going to hire you and you're in a position where you could give them some tips on what would be a great way to work with you. What would be some tips for how to work with Anthony King to bring out the best in Anthony King? Um, I think it's something, at least my perspective is, it would resonate with almost anyone. And that's really respecting the individual enough and making sure that they're qualified for whatever role or job you're hiring but giving them the freedom and latitude to work, to perform that function at that job or whatever that role is. If I was going to go and do almost any role that I was capable of doing and someone was going to spoon feed me and just guide me how to do that, I'm not at that level any longer. And a lot of professionals are now. They're skilled in what they need to do. They need to understand how those clear expectations, but you need to give them latitude to work their own style to actually meet that. Within the boundaries of the company, it doesn't mean you just let them run rogue. You make sure they understand the boundaries of the environment they're in, those clear expectations, but then you let them perform and do that. They may go too far left, too far right, they're going to learn and we need to let them do that. That's how I need to be treated and I need to be hired. If I'm going to be funnel and, and too rigid um, controls on, I am not the person you want to be hired. A couple of years ago, I was talking to somebody who said something very similar. He said, Give people the resources they need and then cut them loose. Yes. And I used to always tell my team, you guys need to tell me what you need so I can get out of the way and let you do your job. If you don't tell me, I don't, I'm going to get in the way and I'll be your obstacle. Your That's a great, great way of looking at it. So tell me what you need so I can get out of the way and let you do your job. That's great. Exactly. So is there anything else you would like to add or 
something that sparked your memory as we were going through the interview? Uh, there, there is one other situation. I'll, I'll bring that up real quick. Um, you talked about cultural things that have influenced or impacted me and then kind of the takeaway or lessons learned from it. Fairly early in my career, I was working in a defense contractor that had some consolidation going on within the engineering function that I was in. Um, the department was going to be reduced down from five sections. So there was going to be one of the section heads that were going to be in a different role. And I thought I had the best section of all of the sections. Um, most people perceived the section that I was managing to be one of the better sections. And when the consolidation came down, um, my leader at the time called me in and told me that he's going to reduce the section. The person that wouldn't end up with the section was going to be me. And I was kind of dumbfounded. Um, but he explained, he says, the reason for it is this you can go do any other role we have in this entire engineering group. My other folks can't. That The role they're doing is probably the best role that they can do. And he told me that, to, I guess, to try to make me feel good as to why he was making that decision. And he told me the other part of it is he was Afro-American as well. He didn't want people to think that he had left me in the role because I was another Afro-American. So he was making that decision because he didn't want to be perceived as being biased, culturally biased. And then he tried to I guess, explain it to me by I was more qualified that I can get a job or go somewhere else. And his boss even up there told him that you need to really talk to him and make sure that and we actually went in and talked to his boss about the decision he was making. And I told him, I said, yeah, I'm okay with it. Um, John explained to me that I can do other jobs and roles. And we just all sort of nodded ahead and went on about business. I got another role that was equally or more providing more opportunity um, in the long run. But one of the things that I learned from that is speaking up. I didn't speak up. I sort of harvested some resentment for a long time after that, that other people were going to proceed. I wasn't qualified enough to have that role. That's why I wasn't one of the remaining section heads. Even though I didn't internally believe that to be true, I thought that how it was going to be perceived. And I didn't speak up and say that in front of either my direct manager or when we went to his boss. That part of the conversation never came up. My, my takeaway and lesson learned is I should have spoken and said that. We may have gone down the same path, but I would have at least expressed that, gotten it off. It wouldn't have been something that festered in me for years. Um, my mentor, John, subsequently to, to that decision, we became very good friends, closer friends and still friends. And we had that conversation, kind of cleared it up. And, and he recognized that he should not have made that decision based on being perceived as being biased. He says, you were the more qualified person. I should have just been willing to make that decision. So it's having the courage to make a decision, doing that right thing again, irrespective of what people are going to think if you're making the right decision. So the two, two things for me out of that was making that right decision and then also speaking up. So even as a leader, we need to speak up. You might still go down the same path, but you want to make sure you actually clear that and have that conversation. Yeah, because you were doubly punished. You're punished for excellence and you're punished for somebody else's fear of optics. It, it, exactly. And, and I let it, it didn't stop my work. I still performed very well. As I said, my career still did very well, but I carried that little bit of resentment down, down underneath for years and years. We finally had that follow-up conversation, but it was years later that I had that. So I wasted all those years with that underlying resentment. Yeah, so you would have you would have felt better about it. There's an interesting study that I read about not so long ago about um, whether it's better to speak up against an injustice or do nothing. And what they found out was that speaking up or doing nothing had nothing to do with whether the injustice was corrected or not. But the difference was that when you spoke up, you felt stronger about it. Yes, and that is absolutely true. And and that's a lesson learned that that situation brought about. So I speak up now, even if I don't think anything is going to change. I will do it very respectfully, but I will speak up. People. Will I said, you will never have to worry about me keeping my opinion completely quiet if I thought it was needed to be stated. So I do speak up now and I think that's 
Because you're essentially depriving the group of the opportunity to learn and move past their current state of limited thinking when you don't speak up. You're depriving the group of that opportunity to move forward. Even if they don't take it now, they wouldn't, they will never have it because you didn't speak up. And, and the other part of it is I'm not always right. We're not always right. You could change your perspective. My hallucination about that situation might change if you bring it up and have that conversation dialogue. If I keep it to myself, nothing is going to change for sure. But at least if I speak up, I get it out and you can have that chance or an opportunity of a more enriched dialogue and relationship. And that's what you really want to have. It's uh, making a consultation soup. So everybody puts in their vegetable or their meat or their grain or their spice, and then it all comes together in the soup. It might not be the way you recognize it, but if some people withhold their piece of the soup, the whole flavor of the soup is less as a result. Yes. So, but you made up for it later. I tried to. You've made many spicy soups since. (laughs) I'm still making it. Yes. (laughs) So we're now at the end and I really, really appreciate your time, Anthony, so much. uh, And I've enjoyed hearing your stories and, and your insights. And I'm sure that our audience will love it as well. And how can people get in touch with you? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Perhaps they might be interested in your services as well as an IT and IT security consultant. So what should they do? There's several ways. I do have a company website, A Consultants, and that is spelled A-K-O-N-S-U-L-T-A-N-T-S.com. After my initials, Anthony King, so it's A-K. Um, the consultant spelled it the K. I'm on LinkedIn as well. They can look for associated consultants and reach me that way or directly from my website. Awesome. And I'll put those links into the show notes so that people can see them, as well as uh, tips from the insights that you provided throughout the interview. So thank you again so much and uh, wishing you a great day and rest of the week. Thank you very much, Marie. Take care. One thing that will really stick with me from this interview with Anthony was the time that he talked about how he didn't stand up for himself and say why he felt he should have gotten a promotion that seemed to be disadvantaged to him, even though in the end it was an opportunity. Although Anthony was very clear on the fact that he ended up getting an opportunity that arose out of this lack of promotion, he still felt really resentful about it because he just didn't have the feeling that he'd stood up for himself and made his own case clear. And that brought him full circle because he was thinking initially about how he should always do the right thing. And doing the right thing was the example his grandmother held up all her life in respect to how she treated others. But in this case, Anthony was thinking he should have done the right thing for himself. And once he came to that realization, he continued to do it. I think this is a great thing to end on. And I hope you enjoyed this really interesting interview with Anthony King, IT expert. See you on the next episode.